Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. How's everyone doing? Are we staying safe? I hope so. Wearing those masks out in public? I hope so. I'm getting a little discouraged, I gotta be honest. This show started back in May at a time when I thought coronavirus would be behind us pretty quickly. And now here we are mid-November. And man, this thing is just surging like crazy. I can't believe the numbers. Just looking back, uh, Saturday's the most recent number. I have 159,000 new cases in the U.S. The day before that, on Friday, 163,000 new cases. I mean, it's just insane how quickly new cases are being added and that they're happening everywhere now. I mean, I remember back in the spring when it was primarily in the Northwest and the Northeast, and now it's just everywhere. And if you look back, you know, they say it can take up to two weeks for these numbers to really appear, for these cases to appear and positive tests to appear. What was two weeks ago? Halloween. So I hope you're thinking about Thanksgiving and trying to make it as safe as possible. You know, I know it is strange to not have the usual traditions that we always do. For us, we used to go visit my grandparents every Thanksgiving in Ohio. And then when they passed, we started going to my wife's family in New York. This year, it's just going to be us and just our household. There was a thought at one time that we might invite another family of relatives over. It would just be our two households, a total of seven people. And we would have everything outdoors if the weather was nice wear masks the whole time except when eating, and when eating, we would not be at the same tables. We would have tables set up, you know, 10, 12, 15 feet apart. And even that, we've decided to go back on, and we're going to keep it to just our household here. And it sucks. I haven't seen family members, God, I guess like Christmas maybe would have been the last time. Maybe we saw them in January or February briefly, but I have not had a big family gathering in a long time. And I do Zoom calls. I've talked about that. But uh, yeah, it stings not having Thanksgiving. But I'm also thinking about other people in the community and just, I don't want to get COVID myself. And I certainly don't want to unknowingly infect other people around me, whether I know them or not. This thing is scary. It spreads fast. Hospitals are overwhelmed. We're coming up on quarter million deaths in the U.S. And it just feels like there's no end in sight. So all we can do is just try to stay on top of it, right? I guess. Brad Brooks is my guest today. Brad is a Bay Area musician. He comes out of Oakland, California. And he has a new album out, God Save the City. came out last month. And uh, it's really enjoyable. I really like listening to it. A lot of fun songs on it, really high energy record. And he has a really interesting story about how this record came into being. He had an album prior to this in 2012, Harmony of Passing Light, which did really well and people really responded to. And Brad's plan was to head right back into the studio and record a follow-up. And just as some of these songs started taking shape, he was diagnosed with throat cancer and had to undergo treatment for that, and he'll talk about that today. And he finished some of the record before cancer and some of it after. 
And it's a really political record too, which I like. It's really about this moment that we're in and just trying to figure out how we all come together and how we deal with some of the things that are plaguing us as a society. So it's a fun interview. It's really interesting just hearing Brad's perspective and his story. And uh, yeah, his music's great too. So we're going to start off with God Save the City, the title track from Brad Brooks's new album, God Save the City. Here it is. And then you're going to hear my interview with Brad Brooks. I want to start by just asking sort of the general question, how has this quarantine period been for you? Yeah, I mean, it's been pretty brutal for most, um, you know, I live in Oakland, California, and everyone lost just every, you know, a bunch of shows. Yeah. You know, it started out here in March. I think it was like March 3rd, that weekend around that time. Yeah, you guys were like ahead of the rest of the country, right? You were one of the first uh, parts of the, the Bay Area was one of the first areas to kind of call it. Yeah. You know, what's funny. It was, um, you know, the NBA was so ahead of everything on all of this. And the Warriors were going to play uh, a game without fans. That was the first thing. And then when Rudy Gobert from the Jazz got it, that just made everybody go, oh, holy shit. We, right. This is just not a good thing. And so, um, yeah, the Barry, Barry has been pretty you know, pretty good about it for the most part. Everyone seemed to, to wear masks early on. And I think it's helped. Our, our numbers are maybe not as um, crazy right now as the Midwest, but also uh, our kind of winter hasn't really started until maybe the past couple of days. It's starting to get cold out mm-hmm. here, but um, I think that has something to do with it. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been brutal, man. I've been trying to, uh, you know, I wasn't sure if putting this record out was the the right timing for it but for me what it was saying and what it was talking about there was really no better time for it and i i really couldn't get it out fast enough because of that um because it's a record that i've that i wrote about when i was going through some cancer some throat cancer just going through that and then also kind of seeing where things were going uh from the country standpoint, you know, when George Floyd happened too, that was things that I've been seeing and hearing for a long time out here too. So um, this record needed to come out, but it was been difficult during this time. Everyone's so used to playing out and we're all really missing that, you know, for sure. Yeah. Just like from a putting food on the table kind of standpoint, how has it been for kind of the music scene out there? Like I feel really bad for anyone that sort of depends on that type of revenue and just, you know, you can't have shows at all right now, right? Not at all. I've done a few solo shows for the most part, but yeah, there's, you know, there's really nothing coming in. I'm lucky that my wife has a steady job and uh, and that definitely helps out a lot. Yeah. I have eight-year-old twins, so there's been a lot of time with them you know, working on their school and stuff. So it's been, uh, it's been good to, to be in like a full-time dad mode, but I've been trying to write throughout some of this too. And honestly, putting out a record, it takes a lot of work, man, to get people to listen to it. And I'm not a new artist, but I'm a, an artist that's doing it myself. And it takes a lot of, uh, work. You just have to be on it every day and just trying to get people to hear it. And, and I think that people 
when they hear it and have heard it, it's been going really well in that respect. Yeah, no, it's definitely like you say, it's a it's an album for the times right now. But it also it has a great energy to it that like, you know, just from that first track, God Save the, the City, like you're just you're hooked. and <laughs> It's just kind of you're there for the rest of it, which I, I love. There, there's a lot of kind of dark themes to it. But mm-hmm. musically, it's it's fairly uplifting, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, I I don't I don't ever come in with a real concept about the kind of records that I'm going to make, but this one and this one as I said was a lot of kind of exercising dark things that had gone on and but it is a celebration of of being able to get through them and kind of pointing some things out. I've always had this kind of soul side to me, soul and mixed with kind of, you know, my version of country and rock. Yeah. You know, I'm a rock singer um, who's learned to write on guitar and piano, and and I think some of that comes through. But I did want this stylistically to be a soul record, and some of that was also because of the people that were that are in in my band now. I'm a very lucky to have a really amazing band, and 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 one in particular is this woman named Vicky Randall, who um, up until the past year or so was touring with Mavis Staples. Oh wow! And so added just this uh, just incredible layer of positivity her energy playing and she's just a badass i mean she's has an amazing voice she you know plays percussion but can play bass and does all these things but having her on this record as well as everyone else too uh just um it definitely has this positive energy to it but pointing out some of the dark things that i feel like have been been building up for a while yeah and i feel like that there's something about the Bay Area, where it feels like some of those things are more pronounced than elsewhere in the country. Like, I remember, you know, coming out there in, I don't know, 04, 05, something like that, and just really loving the vibe and just like thinking, you know, I had been in Boston at the time and, and still live in Boston, but thinking like, if I ever made a move, like, I would love to come out that way. And then sort of seeing it change over the course of, you know, 10, 12 years and sort of as all that tech money came in and, just yeah. you know inequality it just like it's become such a different place and you know I, I feel like some of the tensions that you speak to are kind of rooted i guess in that that very san francisco experience right now well i definitely think the the widespread between the wealth and also um what i've seen you know it's weird the song god save the city was kind of about my feelings about san francisco and how you know people were just getting shoved out financially and they were moving to Oakland, which is where I live. Yeah. And I was kind of seeing that. And, and also, what was Oakland going to be do, able to do about it? The, the homeless situation in San Francisco and in Oakland has always been pretty extreme. And, and since COVID, it's become even more. So my feeling was, so where, where are these people going after they get kicked out, essentially? Because, uh, you know, we're seeing these almost small blocks and towns being set up and then they get cleared out and i'm always like well where did they go and and in fact in the video that i made for god save the city there was one little section that i'd filmed and and i've been kind of filming some of this stuff for a few years now uh just because i've been thinking about it and, and i wanted to sort of shine a light on it and put it in this video 
in this one particular spot i filmed you know a couple days before the video came out and we put it in and then i was there about two days later and they were cleaning it out and i got some of that so we were able to sort of show the juxtaposition of people there and then they're and then they're gone yeah so i feel like that um yes especially in the bay area that the divide is is pretty strong and, and it has been and you know that's kind of that's where it's i mean god save the city is a takeoff on you know god save the queen the sure. sex pistol song but i feel like my thoughts were of san francisco but then it kind of transferred to oakland because i was seeing that happen too yeah and you know the the racial issues come into it as well you talked about george floyd and you know there's a lot of footage especially in the music video of you know, the protests and, you know, police clashing with with protesters and uh, some of the graffiti art that's come out of that time as well. And, you know, just I guess I wonder sort of your take on on where we're at with sort of racial issues, both in the country at large and, you know, specific to Oakland. Well, I mean, I I can only speak to one part of it, you know, because I'm I'm a white guy, you know, and I am a white guy of privilege. So I can speak to what I'm seeing of of people that I know and what they're going through who aren't or people of color. Um, I think this election has showed that this country is still big, (laughs) is racist as hell still. Right. I think in Oakland, people it's with the election happening I see uh, a, a breath of air that people have been able to exhale a little bit, but I still feel that um, there's still so much work needs to be done. And I think the saddest part is just, you know, when especially with George Floyd, it was just so shock. It was shocking, and then it wasn't shocking, right? Because it's happened before. There's a song in the record called "Strange Fruit Numb," which is another song, which is about Philando Castile, the uh, the the guy that was killed in Minneapolis, like. Three years ago, yeah. three or four years ago, and I wrote that song about that. He was the guy that had the gun in his glove compartment and basically told the cop, you know, I'm, I'm going for my registration or whatever. I want you to know I'm legally licensed to have a gun. There is a gun in there. And the cop shot him. He saw him reaching for the gun, right? Overreacted. And yeah, I mean, I that footage just, it's horrific. And um, there's no excuse. And then to see it happen again in Minneapolis, of all places, with George Floyd and and with that cop just sitting on his neck for eight minutes yeah. and four, six seconds. I mean, and, and the world saw it and they and they came out. And I think that was so incredible. If nothing this year, like, think about it, like we're in this pandemic where we can't go see people or shouldn't be around. And people came out because of that. And so. Yeah, in the video, there is some footage of that. There's foot. It's weird. I shot two years ago. A lot of the graffiti stuff I shot two years ago because that's when I started this video. And uh, there's a storage facility that I have in in Oakland, and um, inside of it is this amazing graffiti wall of uh, this artwork. There was a guy in the late night in the '90s and around 2000. His name was Mike Dream Francisco. And he was a very uh, political graffiti muralist and made this amazing stuff. And so this wall is protected because it's in a storage facility, but it's about a football field size long length. Wow. And um, it's all made for by him and his friends. Unfortunately, he was uh, killed in 2000. And so all his friends made this amazing wall dedicated to him. And, and it's all very political art to you know as well because the 90s is i mean things haven't changed that much unfortunately and seeing this wall we were actually started filming the video a couple years ago and then in 
There was one piece in particular called um, Aerosol Moses that I found out later this guy named Caleb Arrow did. And that's the cover of the record of God Save the City. And so I was able to track Caleb down. He, he's an artist in Hawaii and just kind of make sure he was cool with it. And he was, which has been great. There was sort of a tie-in to, to, you know, the stuff that I shot two years ago, because in downtown Oakland, after all the protesting, there was a lot of uh, places that had their their uh, businesses boarded up. And after they were boarded up, graffiti and muralists came out and just made the most amazing stuff. And it's still out there. And so I ended up taking my kids down there because we wanted to talk about George Floyd and about about what was going on. And I went down there and took a bunch of pictures. And then that actually is also part of what, you know, got into the video with all the graffiti stuff, because I felt like this thing that happened was uh, got turned into this amazing art explosion in downtown Oakland. Yeah, no, it's awesome. I, I want to ask you, too, just about sort of politics in music, I guess. And you know, you, you're you're pretty uh, upfront, I guess, about sort of your political beliefs. And I guess there could be the concern that you alienate people or, you know, alienate an audience. Uh, but there's also the idea that, you know, if you're not fully open, <laughs> that, that maybe you're, you know, not being honest with yourself or with your audience. I wonder sort of how you navigate that, uh, that desire to be political in music and why you chose to steer head on into that. I don't try the middle. I I write about what I see and how I feel. I'm very lucky in a way. One of my friends is Wayne Kramer, who is in the MC5. And um, I'm just so admired, uh, an admirer of him. And, and, you know, that band took a political stance early on, too. And and I've always had it in my music. But when you see what's been going on this past year, it's so hard to not just... I mean, I'm, I can only be as honest as I can about what I see and whether people agree with it or don't want to listen to it because they've voted a certain way. Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sorry about that. Then, I mean, I'm a new artist, so I don't have this huge following where I'm going to lose like, you know, this huge amount of sales. Right. I'm just going to be who I am. And if you don't like it, then you don't listen and you don't want to buy it. Yeah. But my passion for the music and for writing is going to be true to the art. And so it's, I guess it depends on if you see it in that way. I mean, there's only a few things that are political that you could say. I, I don't even think, I don't even think it's political. It's, it only became political to me because our last president um, just was such a, a, a throwing gas on the fire about everything. Right. I just see people, but at the same time, I am not going to shut up when I see what's been happening to people of color and, you know, where, where black people can't even walk down the street. They have to have conversations with their kids about some of these things uh, because they don't want them to, to get killed by the police. Right. I mean, that's the other thing I, I talk about it with my kids, but my conversations are going to be different. I can just imagine, you know, if you're a, a black person or a Latino or, Asian, you have to have conversations with your kids about getting pulled over in their teens. You know, I just feel like, um, man, I, I, I can't turn away from it, you know, and, and I'm not. Yeah. And, I, and I think that 
white people have. And I am trying to do the best that I can to not and to be an ally and not just be someone who's like, well, it's not happening to me. So whatever. And that's uh, that's that shit just pisses me off. Yeah. I mean, I think that maybe is the bigger change. You know, I've been trying to think about that, too, because I have definitely felt in this time a need to be more politically vocal and a need to sort of call out bullshit when I see it. But, you know, I, I wonder why. I didn't feel that urge earlier. And I think you're right. A lot of it is kind of white privilege and not having these things. You know, George Floyd pointed this out to a lot of people whose eyes hadn't been open to it, even though it has been going on, as you say, for a long, long time. And there are many, many cases of this. You know, there was something about maybe just all of us being home during that quarantine and and having the videotape of it. And, you know, there was something that clicked in society that I think yeah, it is important that we all stand up. And you're right, it shouldn't be a a red or blue issue to say Black Lives Matter, or, you know, we should all be standing up for each other. That that shouldn't be seen as so political, but it is. Well, yeah, I mean, what you're talking about is humanity, right? right? Yeah, exactly. And is the most important thing. I always think about, you know, when, when, uh, you know, they had the, the SpaceX launch, and and as soon as those guys hit the atmosphere, they're looking at the world and they become a human being. Right. And they look or they look at it as a way as like, you know, we're representing humanity in that way. And I just feel like everything gets so divided. And obviously we're we're still really divided to this day and, and will be for a while. But I don't know, man, for me, it's just all about humanity and trying to point some things out to be positive through it and to and to get through it, you know, and in a way that that we can maybe learn something from. I think that's the most shocking thing and that we haven't learned learned. I I thought we had, you know, I really did. And I thought that young people, especially, you know, when when Obama was elected, I, I felt like that young generation really stepped up. And I know that more people voted than ever now. And, and thank God that they did. But I worry that people will just become apathetic again. And even with George Floyd, until something happens again, people will forget about it and kind of get back in their same sort of feelings about it. That's that's I think the apathy is what I worry about, you know. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I think You know, my hope is that we have a lot of us have had, you know, four years of kind of momentum on our side of really, you know, figuring out how to organize and figuring out how to get behind movements we're passionate about and leaders that we're passionate about. And I hope that that momentum can continue. And as you say, the work isn't done just, you know, by removing Trump from the White House, even even with somebody more favorable in there, Joe Biden there's still a lot of work to be done and we should hold him and, you know, everyone else accountable for if we don't feel like enough action is being taken, whether it's on justice issues or the environment or, you know, we all have a responsibility. It's, I I guess that's sort of what I've realized since the election is that we all have a responsibility in this, right? Like it's had, had everybody not shown up, our country could look very different today. And you, you got to go out there and, and vote and have your voice heard. Well, and the, yeah, I agree completely. And, and also there's that, you know, it's that thing where if you don't vote, then you don't get to bitch about it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to ask you about recording the record a little more. Um, I know you started writing it a couple of years ago. How much of it was actually recorded during this coronavirus time? Um, Actually, none of it was. Uh, This record I started about five years ago when I went to the dentist and they discovered a lump in my neck. Yeah. And it turned out to be cancer at stage four 
and I had uh, have uh, 86 lymph nodes taken out wow. and and 30 days of radiation. And so I went in the studio before my operation to record as much as I could. It was maybe four songs because I wanted to get started because I didn't know what I was going to have when I came out. Right. But I didn't know what my voice was going to be like. I had no idea. It is a 90% success rate on this type of cancer, which was great. And I felt confident that I could get through it, but I just didn't know. And so we went in the studio and recorded four of the songs. And then um, I went through radiation and that took, I lost like 40 pounds and changed my body. I have a friend of mine who did a documentary on that on my whole kind of situation called the hard road. And, and I, I look at it now and I'm just kind of like shocked. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the, we were in the middle of recording it, the record too, but um, I kind of uh, recorded four things then. And then I was kind of incrementally recording more stuff. And then it was really the end of last year that I got, I've, I'm always kind of writing, but as a solo artist, uh, it's harder to write rock, tunes that with a band as a solo i can write piano songs and acoustic songs and and bring things in and but there was a certain style that i wanted to kind of keep this record too stylistically and and for me that's really hard i really am an artist who i don't like to limit myself as far as a style and i think the songs lend themselves to whatever style they're going to be yeah but this one took a little longer also because I'm paying for it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's people don't want to buy music as much. So, but they aren't, it isn't, it isn't free to make. And I, and I, I don't like to cut corners. I, I don't compromise in what I'm doing. And so between that and, and just having the, I needed to exercise what I was going through the mental part of going through cancer and, and, and what that does to you. And so, it, it took a while, but um, near the end of last year, we were starting to get to the point where like, okay, we have it. We have at least the, I felt like the strongest songs. I made it as a record for vinyl. So it has two sides, even though it is, you know, you can have digital copies and it's on CD, but I definitely made it where the rock and tunes are in the front and the a couple of piano songs are in the end because for vinyl that's how it kind of sounds better because of the grooves and stuff oh, interesting it, it is as i was i listened to it on digital and all i was thinking the whole time is like i think this is a record i want to own on vinyl like it just <laughs> that was where my mind went in listening to it so it's funny that you kind of set it up that way yeah well it's on on Bandcamp. you can get it on vinyl and then uh man i'm just uh so glad i was able to do that my last record Harmony of Passing Light, I wanted to do it and just couldn't, but I think I still will at some point, you know, uh, it's, I'm out of, I think I have like maybe, I don't know, 20 CDs left, but um, I'm thinking about putting that one out maybe the middle of next year or something, but, oh, cool. but yeah, I'm, I'm excited that this was able to be on vinyl and, you know, I think people this year have been buying more records, it seems like to me, uh, at least, or maybe it's just me because we're home. Right, exactly. What do you what do you think the difference is between the act of listening to something on vinyl and just having kind of music? Like I feel like if I'm cooking or something, I just have the, you know, the smart speaker just playing music kind of always in the background or, you know, in the car. But there is something that for me I really enjoy just 
the, the very deliberate act of putting a record on and, and dropping that needle into the groove? Like, what is it for you? What, what, you know, what's the difference between just ubiquitous music everywhere and the act of playing a record? Well, I think that's a great question. And there definitely is a difference for me. I feel like when I'm listening, whether it's on my phone or iPod or, or not a record that I'm kind of listening. And, you know, I mean, and I, I feel like when you're, when you're driving in your car and you're listening, you can't obviously play a record in your car, but right. I think when you're driving, you're engaged enough, but still you're concentrating on driving, you know, that it's more a subconscious thing. But I think with records, there's just something more calming. Like when I listen to a record, I'll be sitting down or even if I'm outside doing something in the yard, I feel like I'm just listening to it more. I think that when I'm, you know, sitting down listening to a record, it, there's something just more relaxing about it. I can't put my finger on it other than you have to know when you have to turn it over. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, and also there's the thing about the artwork and holding it in your hand. And I grew up with records and there's just a magic about that. I love going to record stores. I went yesterday, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I, you know, I'm an audiophile, and so I'm buying records and, and looking at records and being a fan of music history. Um, there's just something to it, you know. There's just a tie-in to it, and but I do think it's a different listening experience. At least for me, I tend to relax more when I'm listening to a record as opposed mm. to. I think maybe when we're listening on our phones, we're multitasking. We're doing a bunch of different stuff at the same time. We're maybe on the computer or and maybe it's just a case of not multitasking. If if you're listening and you want to listen, you just whether it's putting on headphones or sitting in front of your record player. I think for me, that's what makes it different. It is more a relaxing experience. Yeah. Well, I, I think the the lack of portability too. That as you say, like it's really easy to just put music on on your phone and you know <laughs> walk from the kitchen upstairs and fold laundry and make dinner and whatever. You know, you can be doing ten things at once, but like in order to really enjoy having a record on, like for us, the, the, the turntables in the dining room. So it's like, I can't really hear it from the kitchen. So it's like the only time I can really listen to a record, I've got to be like sitting at the dining room table, ready to listen. And it does, it puts you in a different frame of mind, which I, I really appreciate and enjoy. I think some of that multitasking part of it too, because we're so wired now, it's almost like a productive um, obsession, right. you know, it's, it's important that I do like five things at once as opposed to one doing it well, you know, but it, it is a different listening, listening experience for sure. And, and um, like I said, it just kind of more relaxes you and, and, and also the listening experience is different from the audio portion of it too. You know, with records, when you listen to them, there's, there might be some layers to listening to a record that you can't quite pick out, you know, when, when stuff used to be trans transferred from, you know, let's let's say, for instance, the Beatles stuff. Right. So when when those records came out, there was these amoebas of sound that were going on and you couldn't quite tell what it was, but it was kind of moving within. And then and then when you were able to get it on CD or digital, you could kind of hear individually where things are, which mm. was cool in a uh, technical sense of, you know, you're kind of studying how they did things. But there was that kind of mystery with vinyl or where stuff is, uh, it's not quite defined, but it's in there. And some of that is with analog tape and some of it with is also happening on vinyl. And I think that kind of mystery is kind of fun to 
to still have, you know? Yeah. I love that. That's a great point. I hadn't even thought about that before, but yeah, I, th I think you're onto something there. I, I want to ask you, um, going through throat cancer and as you mentioned, there's four songs on this record that were recorded prior to your surgery and then the rest were after. When you listen to the difference between those songs, how have you changed from those four older songs to the newer stuff that you recorded after surgery? Yeah, I I think my voice definitely did change, but incrementally over the years, it what I lost, what I felt like I lost came back. And for me, it was more the delicate parts of my voice, mm. more like the falsetto and the the less grittier ed edges took more. And and I I think it was just more of the healing process, and also just you know when I went through it too, I I had to rely more on my technique of singing, which is more in your gut, and so I almost had to really relearn how to sing. Mm. And I have a great friend, his name is Raz Kennedy, who was a great voice teacher. And he kind of rebuilt me. And that was a big, big key. But there's a, it's funny, there's a song called Scared I Was, which was the last song on the record. And it's very, um, it's probably the song that's the most about what I, my personal thing about going through cancer, but also kind of, you know, the nation and, and humanity and all of that. Yeah. And I can hear in my voice it's not perfect. Right. You know, there's, there's a couple, I feel like near the, and I'm just being critical, but near the end, I'm kind of running out of gas a little bit, but it feels so real to what was actually really going on that I wanted to keep it, you know, and, and also just the emotion about what I was feeling. It, it felt real, but I can hear that's probably one song, which is the last song where I can kind of tell when I sang it. And it was one of the ones that I did short, you know, maybe months after all the cancer stuff. Uh -huh. so, so my voice isn't in the shape where it is. Like the last three songs we did was uh, Lee Marvin's Uzi and a song called Angel of Angles. And... Uh, feel the might and and millionaires. So those are like the last four, and and I felt by that point, and I and I feel now that I've got pretty much what I had, and I think that um there was definitely a point where I needed to let myself heal, but I felt incrementally like each year I was getting like a little bit more that I could do. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I didn't pick up on the technique as much as just sort of the, the power of that song, Scared I Was. I, I wrote that one down because I remember, you know, I, I had the album on the first time I was listening to it just kind of in the background and, you know, I was doing some other work and stuff. And when that song came on, I kind of stopped what I was doing and started it again from the beginning. It was like we were talking about, you know, deliberate listening and stuff. There was There was something about just the the energy and the rawness of that song that, that really grabbed me and sort of drew me in. And it's, it's a lot slower than the rest of the record too. It's, it's, you know, a ballad basically, right? Yeah, it's, it, it is about a, a friend of mine, Shay Scott wrote the music for it. And uh, he's a guy who actually produced the record before Harmony and Passing Light with my friend, Paul Hoagland. And, and Shay wrote the pian the music for that. And it's, it's, a, it's the most raw and it's funny, the arc of this record kind of goes from, sort of the I'll, I'll say the cancer of the nation and as it goes on to the second side near the end it's more about my own personal stuff that i went through and 
and even the song before that is a song called burn it off and and that's really about me going through radiation and and my sort of dark period of how i was feeling about that but yeah the the last song um it's funny uh when we play live i i like to start with that song because mm. i feel that um it's just so uh i don't know it's interesting to to be in a, a band or kind of a, a rock soul band or that um you start with this real um honest thing and for me you know i have jitters about playing <laughs> and so to sing something like that scared i was it calms me it sort of centers me in this kind of spiritual musical place, I think. And so we've been, we've been starting it when, when we were playing, uh, we were uh, kind of starting with that song. And I, I definitely could feel people listening because it was something different to start a show. Right. Yeah. It's interesting that you close the album out with it, but to open a live show, but I could see that working. It, it would just, I think, draw the audience in and like, and just, yeah, the, the honesty in that song, I guess, is just there's something that I sort of instantly connected to as as I was listening to it. So um, it's interesting that that's you know one of the ones that you pulled out as well because there's something about that song that's that's pretty great. I want to ask you about uh, your writing process too. I, I had read uh, that you had described your writing process as being very OCD, and you kind of like to finish one song fully before you're willing to move on to the next. Is that uh, did I did I read that correctly? Yeah, yeah, you did. That is true. Near the end of last year, I kind of learned to kind of get past that part of it. And some of it was I co-wrote with a friend of mine, Jerry Becker, who's a great writer. And it was fun to get together with him uh, because um, he likes to write fast. Like, you know, we'd get together during the day and come up with something and and we'd work on a little bit. And then we'd get together, you know, the next time and work on something different. And so I kind of have tried to learn to not be so OCD about that, that process, you know, well, I have to finish the song or the words or the recording before I start something new. But the, you know, there's definitely been times when I'm like, God damn it, I need to finish this thing. And yeah. before I can go to the next one, but I've, I hope that I've learned to, to be a little more, um, maybe a little less precious about the process and more just about just letting it flow and just letting my unconscious kind of come through more with it. Yeah. Well, that's when you, when you talk about being OCD, like I wonder sort of at what level, like are you sort of obsessing line by line and like not able to, to get to the chorus until the verse is perfect? Or like, are you somebody that's sort of able to just sort of fill in and just, you know, Da 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 da. You know, you, you sort of have a melody, but no words yet. Like, what is, what is? How does that OCD manifest itself? I guess in the writing process, it usually comes down to the word, the words, because I think the words are really the most important part of the song to me. If the words aren't right, then I'm not going to sing it the way that I need to. Like, mm. the most important part of a, of a singer is that you're believing what you're hearing, and I think if I have anything that whatever I sing, I believe with my core and can can hopefully emote that and for the listener to be able to pick up on that. The OCD part, yeah, I, I think a lot of it has to do with words and like, you know, if, if I'm not liking a line or it's not working, then I have to kind of still kind of work on it. It's interesting. Some songs come fast, which is great and a gift. 
and then some of I love this uh, expression Tom Waits had. It's like, you know, sometimes it's like you got to break out the plaster of Paris and just <laughs> get dirty with it, you know. And I, I like that. I like that too. Sometimes you just have to. The song isn't done until it's done. And so, I think if anything, I've learned to understand that process and to to maybe be a little less OCD about it as far as like. Well, if it's not coming today, then I'm going to write something else, or or I'm going to try to just to just to stay open creatively. And I think I think writing with my friend Jerry was a big eye opener. It was really uh, it really helped because he 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 writes fast and writes a lot of stuff, and so I actually learned a lot from from doing that. Yeah, that's awesome. Are you somebody that writes lyrics? before you put it to music or do they does a melody come first or do they sort of come hand in hand like I'm, I'm not a songwriter so i'm always curious sort of how that process works for different people you know i just think it depends on different songs you know sometimes the words i might have a title and words that i've written out and other times i've had a melody that i'm writing words to i think more often than not the music comes first and the words come second, at least for me. But there's no, there is really no rhyme or reason to it. There's a song uh, called Lee Marvin's Uzi, right? Which is like this crazy title, but um, it's a true story. I had this title for a long time and I just kind of wrote down a couple of lines about it. But this, the, the story is that I, I used to deliver water in Tucson, Arizona and one of my customers was Lee Marvin, the actor, when he was alive. Oh, wow. So the um, the first time that I went to his house, I went there because it was my first day there. And I wanted to just introduce myself because I did it to all the customers that I met that first first day on this route. And I knock on the door and he answers the door. And, my, and you know, in, in Tucson, he's become sort of an icon he was an amazing actor and an iconic guy. Yeah, sure. And he had this really kind of deep voice. And so we answered the door and I said, hey, you know, I'm Brad. I'm your delivery guy. And he's like, oh, nice to meet you. It was like 730 in the morning. And But as I'm walking to the door on this wall to my left of me, there's an Uzi like that's just sitting there. <laughs> and I had never seen an Uzi in my life. And I still haven't seen one since then. And I was just kind of like, wow, it's just right there, man. <laughs> this, this, this is Lee Marvin's house, and it and it makes perfect sense because he was like a badass, a man's man. He right. was actually the actors that actually did fight in World War II, you know. So he answered the door, and we're kind of talking. I got, I don't know, 10 minutes with him, and I was asking him about singing because he had sang on this uh, uh, couple couple movies, I think he'd sang on, and and but he was very gracious and super cool. And I put the water bottle on the stand for him. And as we're leaving, I was kind of like, "So what's the Uzi for?" I mean, <laughs> you know, I was like, "It was, it was like one of those things that's just in the conversation to me." <laughs> and so, what was going on in Tucson at this time? There was this guy was called the Primetime Rapist, and he was going around in Tucson raping women during prime time, and he got this nickname, and and people were freaked out. And so um, he said, uh, well, that's for the primetime rapist. <laughs> I was like, man, I was like, dude, he, I don't think he's coming here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but so I've always had this weird title that seems to make no sense whatsoever. But, you know, it's a true folktale. That's great. 
and it's just it's such a specific thing that like but it's from your life and that's that's so cool i love that well looking ahead you know it, I, I can imagine it must be tough releasing an album in the middle of a pandemic and you know not being able to tour to support it or anything like what do you see as the next you know six eight months i guess as a musician how how do you imagine your life looking during that time well every, everyone i've talked to i think that if we get back to playing in the spring i think we'll be lucky you know yeah. i don't think it's gonna be early spring i think it'll be april may june um, a lot of it depends on the um if there's a vaccine that was able to go with it and and that people can get it you know i i think there's still going to be you know live streams and and people uh doing what they can as you know whether it's uh, playing outside with people separated i think i think that's still going to be part of it but being able to tour and being in a you know, for people to get together in close proximity, I think we're still a ways away, unfortunately. And so that's very sad. Uh, but I think that um, once we all get together and can, and it's safe to, I think it's going to be a big explosion. I mean, I, I think it could be um, just this amazing time where we maybe we took for granted being able to get together and, and enjoy music and celebrate life, yeah. you know. No, for sure. I think, you know, looking at the celebrations uh, after the election got called and just sort of that collective sigh of relief and that collective urge to party, I have a feeling it's going to be like that. But I don't know that it's going to be as immediate as someone hitting a light switch and just like, OK, coronavirus is cured. But, you know, yeah. a slow dribble back to that point. I think the enthusiasm is there. And you know, when we can. Yeah, I think the clubs are going to be full and people are going to be ready to hear some live music again. Yeah. And I agree with you. I think it will be a gradual thing, too. And I just hope that places are able to hold on. I know that out right. here, some have and some haven't. We have a, a festival out here called Hardly Strictly Bluegrass that's put on by Warren Hellman, and who is a philanthropist and just an amazing, amazing guy. And it's, it's uh, become a, a thing, a big uh, festival in Golden Gate Park out here that, and it's always been free to the public. And he's always had just these amazing bills of people. And, and they actually did a, they did kind of like a live stream, uh, kind of a, almost like a television type show that did really well. But Warren Hellman donated over a million dollars to different clubs uh, in the Bay area so that they could last. And that was, and he's, he's been dead, I think now for like two or three years, but his family and, and his foundation has made it a point to keep the festival going and also to help out, you know, uh, musicians and also some of the venues and, that's such a big thing because a lot of a lot of them didn't make it and i know some that are just still hanging on but people need music it's and i look there's a quote and i don't know exactly how it goes but it's it's a john lennon quote basically saying that music is not dessert it's food it's something that sustains mm. that fills you up and that you have to have it and i feel that way about the arts and i think that people are seeing that you know yeah I hope. Yeah, it is vital. And uh, you don't realize it until it's gone. But uh, hopefully it'll be back as soon as safe. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's that is the operative word, a different people's version of what safe right. is uh, the, the line changes. So and um, I mean, we're all I guess kind of playing the odds a little bit in that way. But hopefully, uh, I really think 
once there's a vaccine of some kind, uh, and also that the treatment is such that you're not going to die, um, that that people will be able to to get back together again. All right, there we go, Brad Brooks. Brad's new album, God Save the City, is available to stream wherever you listen to music. And it's also available as both a vinyl and a CD if you still like physical music. So you can check out bradbrooksmusic.com for more information on where to listen. But it was fun, right? I liked Brad. He's cool. I got to order that record. I actually put that on my Christmas list for uh, my family's doing like a gift exchange this year. And that was one of the items I requested along with a couple other things. So we'll see what happens there. I've mentioned this before, but I have a newsletter now that comes out every Sunday. If you'd like to have that in your inbox, go to heathrosella.com and you can enter your email there and get a recap of shows that you may have missed, interesting tidbits from each interview, and some additional links and other information. heathrosella.com. Click on newsletter. All right, I will be back on Thursday with a brand new show every Monday and Thursday. You know where to find me. Hit subscribe. And I'm at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Please stay safe, everybody. Rethink those holiday plans. Stay out of the hospital. Stay healthy. 